When my friend Ray was diagnosed with cancer, he started reading obituaries. He found comfort in the paper's daily litany of the departed. Somehow, it made him feel less alone. Like a pilgrim who is traveling in company, instead of someone who stumbles along a difficult path by himself. It was the ordinariness of the thing that helped him the most. I feel something similar whenever I thumb through the old yearbooks in the faculty lounge. Their faces framed in horn-rimmed and cat-eye glasses, the images of former faculty gaze back at me with pursed lips or shy smiles. I don't recognize most of the names. They're long forgotten by the school they once served. Along with them are rank upon rank of students who are also long gone. They're not remembered either. Indeed, most of them were hardly known when they were here. Like the majority of us, they were just ordinary people. It's hard to be ordinary, especially in a culture which worships the heroic. This is particularly true of the Christian world. Author Wendell Berry writes that the Judeo-Christian tradition favors the heroic. The poets and storytellers in this tradition have tended to be interested in the extraordinary actions of great men, actions unique and grandeur, such as may occur only once in the world, he explains. This is a standard that's impossible for ordinary people to live up to. As a young Christian, I remember being captivated by the story of Jim Elliot, one of the five missionaries who lost their lives when they attempted to bring the gospel to the Huaroni people of Ecuador. When I finished the book, I got down on my knees and prayed that God would make me a martyr too. It was a foolish prayer, prompted more by romanticism than by devotion. It was a request born of youthful impatience and a rash hunger for glory. Not at all like the real martyrs, most of whom stumbled into their unique calling. It takes another kind of courage and a different set of skills to follow the path assigned to the majority. On some days, we feel like we're only going through the motions, merely shuffling along as we pass into oblivion. Instead, we're traveling in company. We are upholding the world with hundreds of small and ordinary efforts. We make the bed. We drive the kids to school and worry about what kind of day that they're going to have. We go to work. We clean the bathroom. We wait for the end of the world and the dawning of the age to come. It's a kind of liturgy. Practicing the present requires that we reclaim a sense of the eternal significance of the mundane spaces in our lives. We don't do this by trying to change the quality of our experience in those areas. The mundane will still involve the mundane, but we sanctify it by accepting the ordinary as a context in which God is present. The ordinary tasks assigned to us by our calling and life situation are no less meaningful to God than those that are extraordinary. We don't need to be attempting great things all the time. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. As far as we know from Scripture, Jesus spent most of the first 30 years of his earthly life doing very little that was worth writing about. He lived in Nazareth and worked at an ordinary job. To the people of his hometown, there didn't seem to be anything particularly special about him. He was the carpenter, just somebody from the village. We don't need to resort to extraordinary acts of devotion to experience the reality of God's presence. Nor does the reality of God's nearness evaporate when we grow busy or our circumstances become difficult. During those times when we find it difficult to sense the nearness of God, 
He is as present as ever. From the highest heavens to the lowest depths, whatever situation we may find ourselves in is one in which God is already there. Although we always inhabit the present, we often feel as if it's moving past us. Try as we might to seize upon the moment and hold it fast, it slips from our grasp. That good feeling we have passes, or the season changes. The song that moved us so deeply comes to an end, and somehow replaying it over again doesn't have the same effect. It's easy to think that we're standing fast as time marches past us and fades in the distance. We're caught in time's irresistible current and swept into the future. As much as we might want to revisit the past, we can only do so in our minds. We've moved beyond the past and cannot return to it. What's more, the future is just as removed from us as the past. We may be moving inexorably toward it, but the future will always remain in front of us. We can only imagine or speculate what will take place there. But God is the master of time. It serves God's purpose. The same God who established the regular cycle of day and night, summer and winter, seed time and harvest, also orders the seasons of our lives. Our times are in his hand. God always acts on our behalf at the right time. This was true of the birth of Jesus Christ, which occurred when the time had fully come, according to Galatians 4.4. 4. It's just as true in the commonplace things that concern us every day. Why do we brood about the past and fret over the future? It's because we've lost sight of God. God gives meaning to the present. His presence sanctifies our boredom and redeems our discomfort. The present is more than a place where the past comes to rest. It's more than a staging ground for the future. The present is where God shows up.